My guest today is one of the finest cricketers England has ever produced, which says a lot since she doesn't actually hail from Yorkshire. Uh, the current ICC Women's Cricketer of the Year, no less. Her life began with what many would describe as a rather nomadic childhood. She was born in Japan, lived in Poland and the Netherlands, and sport was always a soundtrack. And once settled in England, she was on her way to the top. Having excelled in the age groups at Surrey County Cricket Club, she made her England bow aged 20. In the decades since, she has scooped multiple individual awards and played a pivotal role in England's ODI World Cup win on home soil in 2017. Earlier this year, she made the headlines again as the second most expensive player drafted for the inaugural Women's Premier League in India. She certainly lived up to that price tag, playing a leading role as Mumbai Indians won the first edition of the tournament. She has now set her eyes on an Ashes win this summer. We'll talk about that. So please welcome Nat Siverbrunt onto the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. What a, what a welcome. Well, as, as a history tutor of mine at Loughborough University, I know you're a Loughborough grad, which I'm very proud as Chancellor to recognise very early on in this. Uh, once famously said to me, we only ever reach perfection on our CV, but your CV is pretty lustrous, I have to say. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, it mentions Loughborough University. It luckily, it doesn't mention, you know, what I was doing there. But what I was doing there was getting good at cricket, which was, turns out, quite useful. Really. I, think you're being, I think you're being quite modest because I know as Chancellor of that university, our sports science degree is described between eight and ten times so i'm going to i'm going to make the case for the defense there even if you're not prepared to fair enough fair enough i i did open up i'm i'm fascinated uh, before we get into the into the cricket i'm always fascinated in the hinterland uh, of the people that i'm i'm talking to and i always like to start because i'm a great believer that we're all a suffusion an amalgam of landscape and geography and friends and family and education. I know Loughborough uh, was a large part of that. But yours is, yours, yours, interestingly, is an interesting set of landscapes. I think I described it as being a slightly nomadic existence. Yeah. Explain that because for listeners, they may not be aware of why you were dotting around in some of the capitals of the world yeah so um it was actually my mum uh her job and her was and is um part of the foreign office and so she you know got posted to different places and we all followed in tow my dad me my younger brother and younger sister um and for us it was pretty well it felt normal at the time. I mean, we didn't really, you know, have anything to compare it to. But a lot of people now say, oh, you like moved around when you were young. You, you know, people who stayed at the same house, stayed in the same village for their whole, you know, lives. It's it's different. Um, but, yeah, I guess for me, it didn't feel different. It felt, you know, just a part of life. You're right in saying sport. Um sport i think i think i've actually discovered this recently sport helped me feel part of something but obviously in different countries but playing team sport was was my way of connecting to people and my way of 
socializing and and you know at school obviously making friends was was fine but i think i did my best work but my best work in in a team sport and and getting to know people through playing i guess um yeah but that that was that was in in football really um when i was in holland and poland um i hadn't really played cricket up until i came back to back to england at age 12 13 something like that um and i mean in holland and poland they don't really play cricket so it, it wasn't like i wanted to play cricket but it wasn't available but you know my my family was always very sporty we did you know everything together and and mum and dad were both keen on on all sorts of sports so that's what they they passed on to me my brother and sister um just trying our hand at everything i guess i i'm going to park that thought for a moment or i'm certainly going to come back to it but it's it's rare for me on a podcast to be actually paying tribute to a mother i'm going to actually thank your mother because you're being characteristically modest your mother is currently our ambassador first female ambassador actually to uh, to japan she arrived there in march of 21 and those listening to this will probably immediately recognize that that was right in the epicenter of a delayed olympic games and i know that if i was wearing my british olympic association hat uh i'm not at this moment but i know there are many in the organization that would want me to thank her or doing what was a sterling job, particularly for Team GB that performed so well out there. But so look, I, I, I parked that for the moment. But I'm interested in your observations because yeah, you talked about playing football and 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 other sports. You obviously came from a sporting, obviously a sporting family. You've just said that, but I've always been of the instinct that we none of us actually pick our sport. Our sport tends to pick us and I was you know I, I drifted towards an individual sport my kids for instance are not interested in individual sports they actually like the camaraderie of teams was that really what drove you towards cricket although I mean I know you played hockey and I know you played um uh, obviously uh, football and I, the only thing I don't notice is any reference to track and field here I was a bit I was feeling a bit let down there but I think the the social aspect of the sport chose me. Um, so, I mean, I, I played tennis when I was younger as well. I couldn't I couldn't keep the ball in the court, let alone be on on the court as an individual and you know go through all the like mental battles with everything. And um, yeah, the the team sport and the social aspect and and the belonging that that I got from that was what made me um i guess side with cricket like you say i i think there's been a lot of talk actually um in other in other countries about playing different sports up until quite a a later age like you say not not knowing what you wanted to play but actually then benefiting from that and the sport that you do choose because i mean there's there's people who've grown up playing one sport all of their lives and and in cricket there's so many different skills that you can get from different sports you make the right choice looking back or did the sport make the right choice in you <laughs> definitely um i mean if 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 i hadn't 
I guess just decided on it was it was between football and cricket and the 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 team in the cricket um club that I was part of I got on better with and ultimately that was my deciding factor into playing 10 years for England and everything else that's come with it which seems which seems crazy but um yeah that was that was a huge part of it and I, I mean I forced my sister into joining the the club with me for the first year because I wanted to have a, a familiar face and you know someone to um yeah turn up with and, and not feel socially awkward with I guess <laughs> okay well look we're gonna I'm gonna jump forward a little bit because you made your England debut 10 years ago in an ODI at uh, Louth in Lincolnshire, uh, not a million miles from my own backyard, uh, and that was against Pakistan. 10 years on, you're sitting here as England vice-captain. As we record this, I think we're probably only about, we're only six weeks shy uh, of, of an Ashes tour. I'm fascinated in two things. I'd love to hear your recollections because for for anybody, it's a huge, I mean, there are a few that are privileged to actually compete their country, but for, for many out there, your recollection and your realization of that moment will be an interesting one. So I remember, um, I actually, in the hotel with the team, we were, sharing rooms at the time and I had to share with Charlotte Edwards the captain who was you know terrifying as a as a debutant as a young player not wanting to put foot wrong and not wanting to you know say anything silly or out of line um so I, I was rooming with her and then getting getting to the ground the the red arrows were flying over you know there's it's it's a beautiful like club ground who which was um uh Aaron Brindle who was part of the team at the time she it was her club and um, so you know she had a hand in organizing all of this but as as for the game what I remember was uh misfielding a couple of balls at, at cover so I got sent down to third man um to uh, go and think about things and um Hope. It's always funny. It's always funny how we remember the things that don't go. I mean, competitors always remember the things that don't go well. It's it's always it's always your friends that remind you that actually a lot of things did go okay that day. Yes, I think I got maybe like five runs, and I think it take a wicket. What which was, which is a success, definitely. Yeah, for sure. I was more of a a bowler really when I started. I was batting it probably eight or nine when I when I David I can't I wouldn't know but yeah it's it's changed a lot since then <laughs> let's pick up on the on the change because it's 10 years on we're sitting six weeks away as I've said from an ashes tour yeah could you have imagined the sport the women's sport would it be in such ascendancy over that decade no I mean like all of the people who I started playing with and who are about maybe 29 and above in the team, everyone started because they loved playing cricket. I mean, everyone starts because they love playing cricket, but no one 
knew that there would be a career to be made out of it or you know that you'd that we'd be um part of a WPL auction that is worth a hell of a lot of money but so I I wanted to play because I wanted to represent my country and I wanted to um make my family proud and I wanted to enjoy a game that I love with with a team that would eventually become my family um so I mean to to sit here now and think about everything that cricket's been through and where we're going is just crazy like I don't think anyone would have guessed it <laughs> but people people are starting now and having you know seeing a real stepping stone and, and career to be made out of cricket and I'm guessing that in 2013 you weren't sitting there looking at this as a career a sustainable career you were looking at this as something you enjoyed doing and if people came to watch you that was even better and you do it for as long as you could but you had other ambitions yeah ultimately I would I mean I didn't know what my ambitions were I was obviously at university hoping to get a degree it would help me to get a job to do on the side as well as train um to play for England and yeah I was I was very happy to do that <laughs> that's I wanted to represent my country and, and I wanted to do that at all costs really um and yeah I, I couldn't tell you where where exactly that's come from but yeah my, my upbringing has definitely had a part in that in 2017 what the World Cup win changed everything it 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 definitely did I think COVID probably slowed things down again and then we're sort of on the back on the back up after that but playing playing at Lords was always in, infrequent I mean if it rained for one game so we didn't play um and I think playing in that World Cup final was probably the second time I've played at that ground um and to see it as it was in that game in all its glory with every seat taken and everyone cheering for both teams it was an incredible thing to be part of and I mean we we managed to burgle the win really because <laughs> India should have won but um it was it was written the story was written for us and yeah what what an, what an amazing thing to be part of and for things to become to I guess to grow from that was yeah, incredible. I know that that was, I mean, that was a mountainous moment for you, but I'm guessing, as you've alluded, that was a pretty pivotal moment in, for the women's game as well, because, I mean, you, you scored a half century, I think. It was a, it, it's an interesting observation about the win against India. I, I tend to fail the Norman Tebbit test here because my mother was Indian. So if it's if 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 it's not England, then I'm always supporting India, and occasionally get get torn between the two. But but being serious for a moment, I guess that was a pretty pivotal moment for the game because I sensed that that was when brands began to wake up to the potential, and you you know the the, the central contracts became much more all well they became more embracing, and suddenly there was a career path, wasn't there? Exactly, and and probably from you know receiving the first contract, which was which was um, 
at the time I didn't have to I had to I could stop thinking about what I was going to do you know to make money or you know to live or whatever it was but it actually gave yeah the the clear picture in front of you that the women's game has got places to go and the only way we're going to get there is for you know more funding or more um broadcast deals and more um sponsorship and, and everything and that that image and that um event was the perfect way to encourage more i guess um yeah <laughs> is it is it a surprise to you that it's been well it's been six years since england won a lot well last one a white ball tournament i mean off, off the back of such a hugely successful moment is that i mean how, how do you reflect on that i mean i'm always interested because you know if you look at a, if you look at a sport uh, i tend to think that you know if, if if the cycles sort of move roughly rhythmically then you're saying it's it's sport if you wait too long then sometimes you know i'm probably on the other side of that fence now i you sort of have to look at the administration and you look at the quality of the management, the leadership. I'm interested in in that six-year period. How do you view that? Oh, I guess, so leading up to that World Cup, it was actually our sole focus as a team was being at Lords, um, being on the pitch for the final and hopefully lifting the trophy. And actually, after that, me and and the team a little bit we were a bit lost and so we'd sort of lost a little bit of focus and and i guess the goal in which we wanted to reach um you know when you're when you're at the top then you become you don't become the chaser you become chased and we couldn't sustain that um also a lot of a lot of the personnel changed within the last probably two years after that um which is unsettling in any team, I guess. Um, it's it's from a cricket point of view, it's extremely frustrating that we haven't been able to win another white ball tournament. Um, and yeah, don't get me wrong, that's that's something that we want to put right. Being able to train in the way that we can with professional contracts and the programs that we've been given is. You know, you have to put money in the bank before you get a result a little bit. Um, and the way that we've grown as a side, you know, then in the last two years, probably in the last year, is that everything seems to be going bigger and bigger and bigger, but in a shorter space of time. Um, but I mean, the world game has grown as well. Um, and, you know, we can't look past obviously Australia, who we'll be facing soon in the ashes, but they're leading the way with the professionalism in the women's game, I think. Um, you think there are things we can learn from that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, they've got different um, structures and ways of doing things, but the way that we've been able to put money into our regional setup and things like that will help the England side in two, three, four years' time, where there's more competition for places. There's more pressure on people in the England side to perform and standards should 
should hopefully rise. Um, but yeah, there's nothing. I would like nothing more to then to win a whiteboard tournament. <laughs> well, the the first challenge is actually not a whiteboard tournament. We're sitting six weeks, as I said, six weeks shy uh, of, of the ashes, uh, and that's that's an enormous moment because you'll be playing in some of the great cricket venues uh, in England. Um, what are your? I'm interested. What are your? I'm interested in obviously your hopes and expectations on the field of play, but how do you want that to manifest itself as a legacy beyond the field of play? Um, well, I think playing at all of the, you know, big, iconic venues um, for the Ashes and for, you know, international cricket is something that we've been sort of working towards probably in the last two, three years since since the hundred really where there's been more of a market for women's cricket um but that should i guess give us a, a great platform to raise the profile but i mean that it doesn't it doesn't only depend on you know the results and on us performing or the way in which we play or you know whatever it is but it has a, it is a good chunk of it and the you know that we'll never have as big of a summer that is coming up probably um and the the level of it will just will just increase and we need to be we need to be able to match that with our performance really um and coming off the back of a disappointment again in a t20 world cup and all of this there's I guess things things to be addressed and yeah the way in which we play or our new coaches instilled in us is um more important than ever I guess and not to not shy away from the the battle and not shy away from the team that's ranked higher than us but hopefully we can slip under the radar with not being favorites on the pitch um and then do all the things that come naturally to us when you're thinking about the bigger game and a sodium for for cricket and women's sport. But I don't know. Yeah, it's a it's a big summer coming. Actually, you know, not knowing what what the what the summer will bring. I mean, maybe we should catch up after the summer and, and really think about it. Well, well, maybe we should actually. That's a really good idea. Thank you for agreeing to a second podcast. <laughs> I normally have to work a lot harder with my uh, with my victims, but no, thank you. You start at Trent Bridge, which is also a landmark because it's the first uh, it's the first ever five day test. Yeah, um, and I've done a little bit of number crunching here. You've played eight test matches. Yeah, uh, but between now and twenty twenty five, the ICC have only got seven scheduled and it i'm i'm interested that yeah. i'm i'm a little bit disappointed i don't know how you feel that the icc seems to have actually written all women's test cricket or am i is that a harsh assessment okay if you asked every every international women's team whether they wanted to play a test match they'd all say yes um so 
I guess we're on we're on different pages with that. And playing playing an Ashes Test match is, you know, the thing that 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 motivates people more than more than others, really. Um, and just it's it's funny because you know you 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 know it's going to be a physical test, but the waiting that it holds in the you know, playing for England, playing for the Ashes, playing against Australia, playing against the best in the world, and what that means, it, it outweighs everything else, really. Um, but, yeah, I guess not everyone sees women's test matches in that way. But we have got a fifth day, like you say, and we are desperate to get a result because the last however many I've played in has, has all been a draw or a loss. Um, but... Yeah, that that fifth day will certainly help us get a result, and hopefully the result that we want. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's interesting because, of course, we've seen the Lionesses fill stadiums. We've just recently watched the Red Roses uh, at Twickenham. I think a world record crowd of fifty by fifty six thousand, which is is extraordinary. Um, so far, ticket sales have been respectable for the Ashes, so I think about fifty five thousand. Uh, have, have been sold so far, but I guess the aim must be must be to 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 go higher than that. And this again, you know, twenty seventeen was a seminal moment. This sort of strikes me as being another one uh, of those moments. Yeah, and and it well, hopefully it will be. I guess and ticket sales have you know been told today even. You know things so things are selling out quicker than ever before. But I mean they they've also put they also started the ticket sales way earlier than they ever have before. Like we we our our matches got announced when the men's did uh, what in September last year, wherever it was. Um, but just just being able to obviously having an Ashes series for the women and the men at the same time is is. Um, something that you can really build on and yeah hopefully we can sell the tickets and make it that moment because we probably won't have a, as great an opportunity as this to make it really hold on to the concept of aiming high uh, because I must ask you about the launch of the women's uh, Premier League uh, which in itself was a game changing tournament that I, I actually genuinely think has changed the landscape uh, of women's cricket forever. But again, let me start with the personal because you were a crucial part of the uh, Mumbai Indians team that won the inaugural uh, WPL. You provided match-winning knocks in both the semi-final and the final. Um, I'm fascinated given my own heritage. How did you find India? How did you find that atmosphere? I mean, I've, I've rarely been anywhere where you sort of recognise that a sport is actually a religion. We've toured India before, but it was it was nothing like that. <laughs> no. just, just you know, from from arriving, the everything that comes with it. You know, being sold for, I mean, being sold as as a concept is a, is a new thing for for women's cricket, but. You were the second highest paid player in the draft, weren't you? Yeah, just yeah. The sheer the sheer weight of that could have 
you know, tipped tip pressures over so high that, and um, you know, maybe I couldn't cope. But it was. But you did. I did, but it, I think it largely down to feeling confident in my in my cricket um, and being able to just naturally play rather than having to think about too much and get too far ahead of ahead of things. Um, but what an in, what an incredible tournament it was i mean i've watched like men's ipls and my whole mad um it really is but experiencing it is is a completely different thing and just yeah it was the atmospheres that were created obviously we it was lucky that we were the home team um but playing in front of crowds like that um yeah, it, it was just different, and the energy was was incredible. Give me an example of a crowd of a, a capacity crowd there. Uh, the so the DY Patil Stadium, I think, holds sixty thousand people. Um, but the final was played at Brayball, which is the yeah club of India. Um, yeah, and that was a bit smaller. It's maybe. A be- that's a beautiful old stadium. Thirty or forty? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We played in one city. We played at two grounds. The only one that really, and the world, India is, is endless, and the opportunities are endless. Um, yeah. There were there were six other England players that actually came through the draft, and actually some some life changing uh, some life changing uh, figures. Uh, but others, of course, it's you know it's the way of the world. Were, were less fortunate. Was did you find that a challenge, given the the disparity in uh, in, in the salary bands? So the in the auction, I think I think the more the challenge was, um, for me was people being picked up or not. Like yeah, no. Catherine, um, obviously put herself into the draft and didn't get picked up and. As her wife, I want to support her, but also be happy sure. about what's happened to me. And so it was, it was a tricky time, but maybe I ignored it. Or you know, the the price tag put on me was something that I didn't i I didn't really not believe, but it, it just felt so unbelievable that um, I didn't know if it was you know didn't know if, if it was true, but it didn't feel real. So actually, the, the girls who did go to the IPL uh, to the WPL, sorry, yeah, um, it felt like a bit of camaraderie that we were all sort of in it together, and and we were all going through similar experiences and similar chaos, and so it all sort of felt like we were in it together. Um, obviously, when you're playing against each other and playing against your own teammates, usually is is tricky. Um, and something that's not that enjoyable, um, but yeah, it was it was obviously there's differences in pay and uh, pay levels across franchise cricket and across England. Um, so we sort of experience that difference quite often. Um, but it's funny that the yeah the expectations from everyone is the same. Uh, I'm guessing you see the uh, WPL as being a huge success. I mean, there were incredible uh, levels of investment, um, and I 
I'm interested. Do you think there are lessons to be learned, particularly from the men's game, in terms of how uh, the women's game might be shaped in its in its future? And and I'm I'm particularly interested also in terms of ensuring that the power, both financial and administrative, doesn't really end up in the hands of just the big three. I think for me that was that was in, there were was, there were some interesting concepts there. Yeah, I think um, like we sort of the men's cricket sort of went through what we all go through, but they went through it in like probably ten years. It's people, you know, international players experience um, choosing franchise cricket and things like that. But the women's game, you know, you've already sort of seen it. There's players from outside the big three, like you say, who have decided to finish their international careers. Um, and take up franchise opportunities, which you know you can't blame them when you when you work out that the same amount of money can be made in in a month than in a year with you know comparing different employers. Um, it's it's a tricky time and something um, that needs to be de- needs to be handled carefully, I guess. But when we from an England perspective, when you when people are playing, you want everyone's 100% commitment to playing for England. You don't want, you know, um, thinking about playing for a franchise just before a tournament or, you know, whatever it is. There's The balance has to be right between being, uh, being able to play and then concentrating on, you know, what you're playing in at that moment and, well... For me, growing up, I always wanted to represent England, um, and I still do. And that's the best players are, who want to play for England are playing for England and, and committed to that. And yeah, taking opportunities when it's when it's right and when it suits them. I mean, you can't go around playing for England and play all of the tournaments, and spend more than two weeks in your own bed during the year. <laughs> It just doesn't work. And I mean, some people want it like that, but not, not me. <laughs> uh, look, I'm, I'm, I'm actually, you've, you've introduced a, uh, an issue which I really want to explore with you because you've talked about the challenges, you've talked about the pressures, and I always sense that, yes, there are external pressures, of course, on competitors at the highest level, but I've always sensed that the biggest pressure is often self-inflicted. It's the desire to to be better this time next year than you are now, to be better tomorrow. You know whether it's in the, you know, in the nets or 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 on the training track. Do you think that those? I mean, I'm guessing. I know the answer to this, but I'd like you to sort of take me through it. That 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 those pressures had a cumulative effect, didn't they, on you uh, in the same way that they have on many competitors. I mean, I've just got a list of some of the things that you actually had to countenance in and around, you know, getting to the very highest level in your sport. You had an anxious series. You then had a, a, a quarantine. You then had an isolation period in advance of the New Zealand uh, World Cup. You had a short break. You got married. You then had the summer to think about. You had the South Africa all-formance tour. You had a Commonwealth Games. 
of Commonwealth Games. I'm getting tired just, I mean, I'm getting exhausted just going through this list. You had the 100, which, of course, we're, we've got, we're looking forward to that in August. That's sort of revolutionized uh, a large part of the sport. You took on the vice captaincy. I'm not really surprised that you decided that just a period of decompression was in order. Yeah, it was it was a lot, and it just taught like touring when there were still COVID protocols in place was hard, um, and it took it took the fun out of touring really because you you know that was growing up that was part of growing up in cricket having you know made my debut that was the best part of your touring you're with your mates you're like going out and exploring you um making memories and and everything and that that was stripped back and taken away from us which we were still sort of experiencing in in australia and new zealand um and yeah then couple that with a bit of you know disappointment that we sort of capitulated after the test match in in the ashes we got to the final of the 50 over world cup and lost to australia again in you know again in the space of few months um and then yeah fast forward to the summer and and all that that brought and heather then picking up an injury and me taking over and yeah it all felt it all felt a lot and yeah, by the was, time was there one particular was there one particular moment where you just actually this is just out of kilter. There isn't there is just isn't enough balance here. I think the the biggest the biggest part for me was allowing allowing myself to because in how how I am as a, as a person I want to um do everything right, try and not miss out on anything, put absolutely everything into my training, into the games, into it all. I take on a big role as a as an all rounder, but one that I wouldn't I wouldn't want to give up. And so I I wouldn't want to miss out on anything and, and saying that I need to go home or, or miss something is was something very, very hard to get my head around ultimately knowing well on the other side of it i know it was the best decision for me but it, it but it's it, it may have been the best decision but it's also look it's a brave decision i don't i don't know i haven't spoken to too many people either you know friends or 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 on podcasts that have made that decision i mean you had and you had i mean it was absolutely the epicenter of your career and yet you made that judgment i guess there are two questions i'd love to explore here one is that is a brave decision and secondly are we as sports organizations as federations i'm president of the world athletics i'd, I'd spend a lot of time thinking about this are we doing enough to really be acute and attuned to the mental and physical welfare of competitors um, for me, I guess giving myself permission to say that it was too much and all of the worries that I had, you know, letting people down, not leaving the team in a good place and, and all of this, it ultimately 
after having made that decision, those those things that I was so worried about became much smaller. And but just allowing myself to do that was such a big part of it. And I think if you know, there's support. There's always support in in DC being within our team. But if you're not receptive to actually receive it or, or ask for it, it's it makes it tricky. And I think do you think we, we should be? But but do you think we should be more proactive? I mean, it's sometimes these individual decisions are really difficult. I you know I, I've known that there have been moments in my career where I really probably should have taken uh, a month or two off. I haven't because, as you said, you you don't you know it. It's a short career. You don't want to miss out on anything. But do you think we should, in federations, just be a bit more proactive and say, actually, sometimes the competitor is not always in the best. Look, we don't want to be, you know, we don't want to be nanny knows best. But sometimes the competitors may not be in the best best position to make those those decisions for themselves, or or at least alone in the decision. Yeah, you're right. Because I mean, in 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 team sport, obviously, I've got experience in that. I don't, I wouldn't be able to say about individual sports, but it's such a, a big camaraderie around the group. You you wouldn't want to let anyone down, and actually, the being having the decision taken out of your hands would would be easier. You you might not like it or agree with it as much, but that is that is definitely one way of it. One way of helping, or, or you know, not letting people get to the crux that I did. You, you've been incredibly generous with, with your time and I, I could go on chatting all day. I'm going to finish on two, just two quick sub-themes here. Um, you are, by any stretch of the imagination and certainly in any litmus test for me, you are a serial winner. Uh, and your list of achievements is is frankly lustrous. You're a World Cup winner. You're an inaugural WPL uh, winner. You've been Wisdom, or you are currently Wisdom Cricketer of the Year. You're the ICC Women's uh, Cricketer of the Year. You won the Walter Lawrence Award on three. I mean, okay, I could keep going on. It is there? And, and, it, and actually, often when I ask this question, it's the most unexpected answer that I get. But... What actually in your career has been your proudest moment? And it may not be one of those. Um, I think that's a hard question. I mean, the, the, I feel like the 2017 World Cup with, yeah, I, that is such a big moment for me and, and the side, I think, Having played quite a big part in in some of the games that led us to the final, I feel like I had quite a good um, contribution in that. Yeah. I guess. I think that's a slight under. I think that's a slight understatement. If you don't mind me saying, but sorry, I I stopped you. I guess so. In the in the WPL final, the final sort of in in terms of finals that I played. It's been it's been quite similar, um, you know, teams teams getting an okay and then not being able to chase it, and usually it's England that hadn't been able to chase it. But 
learning from that and not letting that happen again and having a huge part in that in that game it that for me was is my biggest moment i think and yeah being being able to say that i i didn't throw that didn't throw my wicket away i was able to see the team through to the win hit the winning runs it was yeah a, a huge moment it was a huge huge moment for a lot of people. I'd rather at least you chose that because it was <laughs> it was one of the moments that I will always remember. You played look, you mentioned actually in, in our opening salvos, you mentioned Charlotte Edwards and think partly how terrifying terrified you were of she, of of rooming with her and, and just the sheer magnitude of what she already achieved. But you've also played against some of the greats like Sarah Taylor and these Perry Mitchell Raj. Past and present, who would you love to be playing alongside? And uh, anyone can be in my my team. So uh, anyone. This is your this is your desert island disc moment. Um, I'd like to I'd like to play alongside Elise Perry, which which sort of pains me to say actually, but <laughs> as someone who I've I've played you know, all of my career against her and all of the, you know, she had a period where she didn't score less than 50 against us for like six or seven matches. And she just, you know, won them series, won the matches. And to be, to take it, to take some nuggets of that and take some wisdom from her, um, from one all round to another, I think it would be special. The great coaches you worked with? Um, well, t to be fair, Charlotte Edwards at the coach was way different to Charlotte Edwards, the player. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. How, how did you? I guess just in the relationships that she had with all the players when she was playing and when I started, it felt like the, the magnitude of what she'd already achieved felt so big that it, that it wasn't attainable and it wasn't so her as a person wasn't accessible almost so you know I, I had the the utmost respect for her and enjoyed playing with her and but delving into her as a person I've been able to do more when she was coaching because she's not you know got the game the game captain head on and and things like that and is a bit more open and me as a person I have grown so much from cricket and you know willing to willing to make that um make that conversation easier or you know be more open to to everything really um so yeah we've, we've both changed i guess yeah i'm not going to eat into your stomach anymore and <laughs> uh, certainly not into your uh, uh your physical or your mental preparation but good luck this summer uh mercifully I don't actually have to enter the moral maze this time because it's Australia, not India. So I will be watching. Uh, the very best of luck to you and the team. And thanks for being with us today. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Extraordinary Tales in Extraordinary Times, brought to you by CSM 